You'll join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 this morning, as we continue our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, we will be looking at verses 17 through 24. If you're following along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 940, page 940. The title of our sermon this morning is Teach Yourself, and the key words for our worshipers in training are boast, teach, and truth. In 1990, the nation of Japan paid $6 million to boxing officials for the privilege of staging a boxing match at the Tokyo Dome featuring the then 23-year-old undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion, Iron Mike Tyson. And he was fighting against the 29-year-old Buster Douglas. The fight was billed as Tyson is back. And it came after Tyson's previous fight when he had knocked out Carl the Truth Williams in a stunning 93-second victory. Leading up to the fight, HBO boxing analysts said they expected to see another 90-second annihilation. And so instead of discussing Douglas's chances against Tyson, the commentators compared their pets. Tyson had a white pit bull named Duran. Douglas had a beagle named Shakespeare. One of the analysts, after saying that this fight is over before it begins or soon thereafter, describing Douglas as just another frozen tuna from the Tokyo fish market, said that any prize fighter with a dog named Shakespeare can't be all bad. In an interview given to HBO prior to the fight, Buster Douglas told reporters that his favorite Shakespeare play was the romantic tragedy Romeo and Juliet. Another analyst suggested that if if Mike Tyson were asked the same question, assuming that he had ever read Shakespeare, he would choose something more bloody and violent like Henry V or Macbeth. So on February 11th, 1990, the two heavyweights got in the ring And before it began, the announcer said, just another day of work for Mike Tyson. He looks almost bored as they're called to the center of the ring by the referee. Now, much to the surprise of the boxing world, the first seven rounds of the fight went on and were rather uneventful as the two boxers traded punches. They both began swelling over their eyes. And then within the last 10 seconds of the eighth round, Tyson landed a big right uppercut and it sent Buster Douglas to the mat. Well, Douglas rose as the referee signaled the ninth count, but the bell ended the round. Then in the dramatic ninth round, Tyson came out aggressively to end the fight and to save his title hoping that Douglas was still hurt from the the previous knockdown, but Buster Douglas was able to fight off Tyson's attack and was able to close one of Tyson's eyes completely. Now, both men traded punches before Douglas connected on a four-punch combination, and Tyson staggered back against the ropes, and as he was leaning against the ropes, he was hurt, and Douglas closed in and unleashed a vicious four-punch attack to try and knock him out completely. Mike Tyson tried to fight off Buster Douglas, but it was in vain. He continued to land his punches on Tyson as the round came to a close. Mike Tyson barely survived the ninth round. 
In the 10th round, Tyson pushed forward to fight, but he was still seriously hurting from the accumulation of punishment given throughout the match. And as he walked forward, Buster Douglas laid down a few jabs, and then he landed a devastating uppercut that snapped Tyson's head upward, stopping him in his tracks. As Iron Mike began to fall back, Douglas immediately followed with four punches to the head, knocking him down for the first time ever in his boxing career. And at that point, he had had 37 victories. And so in a famous scene, now Tyson fumbles for his mouthpiece on the canvas before sticking one end in the mouth and the other end hanging out. He tried to get on his feet, but he could not stand up, and the referee counted Mike Tyson out. Buster Douglas became the new heavyweight champion, and the fight became one of the biggest upsets in boxing, and indeed one of the biggest upsets in all of sports history. So what happened? How was it that Mike Tyson went from not only being the favorite, but even the commentators and boxing experts essentially calling the fight over before it began, to him being knocked out in the 10th round? Leading up to that, Tyson had won so often that he assumed in his own mind that nobody could ever beat him. So he had this, this false sense of security. He had slacked off in his training. He had surrounded himself with multiple women. He was taking drugs. He was constantly partying. And all of the people that were around him were telling him that he was so good that he did not need to keep working so hard. So he didn't. Later on in an interview, Mike Tyson said, I came close to pulling out of the fight altogether. I didn't want to train. I was 23. I wanted to party. I wanted to have fun. In the meantime, Buster Douglas was training and preparing, and never thinking for a day that he was going to, to win by slacking off. He fought with purpose. He came out victorious in the end. Now, if you're a sports fan of any kind, you can likely think of an epic underdog story of your own, a time when the guy or the gal or the team that was never supposed to win came from behind or rose from the bottom and made their way to the top to everyone's surprise. And I don't want to take, any way, take away from anyone's underdog success because they work very hard to get where they are and to do what they do to win. However, just like the Tyson-Douglas fight, one of the biggest reasons underdogs win is not because they're necessarily better than their opponent, though they were good, though it was no walk in the park, there was no... The thought, though, was that nobody would beat this other person, that they didn't need to do anything, that they didn't need to prepare, that they didn't need to have the right mindset and the same strategy and the same focus that they had if they were going up against an opponent that was as close to as good as them. They just assumed that they were good enough, and they never paid attention to ensuring that they couldn't get beat. And then once it's too late, once the clock runs out, or once their back is on the mat and the count is 10, they are stunned. Now, as we come into our text this morning, it's important to remember that Paul has shown us something thus far in his letter to the Romans. Remember, in chapter 1, we saw the Gentiles, the description that Paul had given to them of their suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and ungodliness, 
that they were worshiping creatures rather than the Creator, that they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And in the end, they were all without excuse because God has made Himself known to all men everywhere through His creation. And then as we got into chapter 2, we saw Paul's indictment now of the Jewish people, those who were living lives very much like we see with that of Mike Tyson, that they thought they were fine. They thought everything was good, that they just could sit back and relax because everything was taken care of because they were the Jewish people. They didn't need to think about their own lives. They didn't need to consider their own way of living. They didn't need to consider holiness. They simply needed to be born Jewish, and as a result, everything would be just fine. Now, last week we saw that there are really no relativists in this world. Everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. We all admit that. Everyone claims some level of moral authority. For the Jews, it was because they knew and had the law of God. And for all others, it's because the law of God is written on our hearts. All of mankind everywhere at all times, have no excuse because the law is plain to us because we are all born with a heart. Every time we open our mouths to say something is right or to say something is wrong, we prove that no relativist exists. And we also prove that nobody can live up to the moral standards that we set for ourselves because those moral standards are remarkably aligned with the law of God. So this morning, Paul continues in our text to show how the Jews had grown complacent, like Iron Mike Tyson against Buster Douglas. When it came to the world of the Jews, by the time Jesus was walking the earth, they assumed that they were fine because they were born Jewish. They wore a badge of honor as God's people. They claimed moral and spiritual authority, superiority, because they were Jewish by birth. In other words... How they lived didn't matter. It was simply a matter of fact that they assumed that they were completely fine because they were alive as a Jew in the first place. And so all they wanted to do was to party, to have fun, to do what they did despite what they knew to be true. They boasted in all that they had. They relied on what had been given to them by God, but their lives were a reflection of the fact that they thought their moralism They thought their ethnicity, they thought their outward actions were going to be enough to get them to the finish line and to win. But Paul is going to come in here and cut them off at the pass in our text and show them that they have been terribly mistaken. And if their eyes are not opened at this point, they will soon find themselves looking up with their backs on the mat and staring into the face of God's perfect judgment when they are without excuse. So as we press on this morning, I want us all to be thinking about ourselves. What am I relying on to get me safely across the finish line? How do I plan to be victorious in this life as I pass through into the next one? So let's read beginning in verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew 
and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the first thing we saw when Paul was addressing the morally corrupt world of the Gentiles back in Romans 1 was that he was pointing to the reality that all of mankind has fallen short of what God has given to us in His law that is written on His heart. And then he dealt with the more moral world of the Jews, who had at least in word a higher moral standard than their Gentile neighbors. And Paul showed, though, that they too are sinners. And his goal in all of this was to continue to plow up the hard ground of the heart, to turn it under, to expose that hard-packed soil to the sunlight, to, to expose it, to expose what has been so hidden and so suppressed, to bring it out and to, to shine the light on it so that it could be dealt with properly, that it could be seen for what it is that it could be identified in its ugliness so that everyone will eventually find themselves in this equation that He has been laying out so that all of us would come to the end of His descriptions with nothing left to say other than, woe am I, a man, a woman of unclean lips, an unclean heart amongst a people of unclean lips and unclean hearts. Paul is driving and pressing and prodding to show us our great need of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And he will not stop wringing the filthy rags until they are bone dry. Now, specifically here as he's dealing in chapter 2 and then going on into chapter 3 with the Jewish people, he's driving to where he eventually gets in chapter 3 and verse 9 where he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. So you see, in the same way that Paul was not saying that the Gentiles with their low standards of morality were far off from having any hope. He's also not saying the Jews with their high standards of morality and their possession of God's law have a greater reason for hope or are without hope. But instead, he's showing them what he announced back in chapter 1 and verse 16. The power of the gospel is both for Jews and Gentiles, and no one has an advantage, no one has an upper hand, no one has the ability to have any assurance that they will make it to the end of the fight in this life and be okay apart from Christ. As they stand before the judge, 
as they stand before the one who has given them life because of what they have done or have not done. All of us, this is Paul's main point, all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are sinners in need of salvation, and that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here in these specific verses, Paul is writing about the Jews, but what he deals with is a form of resistance to God's standard, to God's perfect righteousness. And that is common amongst all people who are religious, and specifically amongst Christians who believe in the Bible as God's Word. This is very much a text for us as a local church. And the resistance he is dealing with is the assumption that having so much revelation and so much knowledge and so much truth that we know and understand and talk and think about and discuss and and study and preach, that all of the sudden our primary business is to set each other right, to condemn the world, to condemn our neighbor, to condemn our brothers and sisters, to point out everyone else's sin and yet fail to uphold God's standard in our own hearts, to consider our own lives, to consider our own sin, to repent ourselves. This is a significant danger for all of us, so we must focus our hearts on Paul's warning here. And so one of the things that he shows us here at the beginning of these verses is that the mere possession of the truth is not adequate for salvation. You'll notice what Paul is pointing out here is that the Jews were relying on what had been given to them, namely their Jewishness and the law of God. They had gotten to a place where where training for the big game or, or where preparing for the big fight just wasn't necessary in their minds because they had won already. It was already in the books. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he's he's pointing out how proud they were of all that God had given to them. And and Paul makes two lists here. He's doing what he so often does so masterfully. He's he's painting a picture that leaves no way of escape. There's no way any religious person could escape from what he's laying out. And in that first list, he's saying there are Jews that, one, rely on the law, that, two, they boast in God, three, they know God's will, and four, they approve what is excellent. And all of this is traced to this privilege that they have that they are instructed from the law of God. In other words, they have the truth, they claim to love the truth, they boast in God as the giver of that truth, and they assume, as one who will save them, that God will look at them based solely on their Jewishness. And so even by calling themselves Jews, even by identifying themselves as Jews, they were bragging. They were boasting. They were saying effectively that they're better off than everybody else. 
that God loves them more, that God cares about them more, that God favors them more. For the Jews of Jesus' day, being Jewish, meant in their minds that there was no need to go beyond what they already possessed. They were so proud of what God had uniquely gifted them with in the beginning of His church through these people and giving them His law that they really didn't care about anyone else. Think back even to Jonah. Remember remember Jonah, the prophet? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He thought to himself, "I'm I'm a prophet of God. It is below me to go to those pagan Gentile people. And besides, what if I get there and they actually repent? What then? God couldn't possibly save those people. God couldn't possibly care about those people. But you know the story and you know the truth. They did repent. God did save those people. God did care about those people. But this was the same sin that the Jews in Jesus' day were full of. They loved the exclusiveness of being Jewish. And so they turned inward. They created this false sense of security based on what they had in their ethnicity, which was a gift from God. I've so often talked to people who insist on their right relationship with God based on everything other than the gospel. In fact, just just yesterday I spoke with a man and he said, my wife is such a good Christian woman. She really is the one who keeps me grounded. She is the one who balances me out. And he said, she is my Savior in this life. I don't know what I would do without her. Frequently, I'll, I'll ask people about their relationship with Christ, and they'll say things like, I grew up in the church. Great. That's wonderful. So tell me about your relationship with Christ. Well, I, I grew up going to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school in the summers. My mom used to read the Bible to me as I went to bed. I went to Christian school. My dad was a deacon. Those are all wonderful things, wonderful gifts from God, amazing blessings by God's grace. So tell me, how did the Lord save you? Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. I I memorized Scripture as a kid. I listened to Christian music on the radio. I always tried to do the right thing. No mention of the gospel. And look, it is so easy for all of us to fall into this trap, to boast in what we possess, to want to rely on what we do or what we have done, to find our righteousness in what God has given to us in this life or what we have earned by our own doing, but what is missing from everything I've just laid out is that profession of one who has truly been transformed by the gospel. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All of my church attendance, all of my Sunday school and VBS going, all of my serving in the church, even as great as these things are, as necessary as these things are, as much as God commands them of us as His people, they will not save you. 
Listen, you can memorize the entire Bible. You can feed all the hungry kittens. You can adopt all the orphan children. You can fund all the hospitals. You can own all the best theological books. But if your boast is in anything other than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, you will fall far short of all that God requires. Simply having the Bible and even knowing the Bible and having good theology and being part of God's church, listen, wonderful things, but they're not saving things. You cannot be saved by your knowledge of Scripture. You cannot be saved by Reformed theology. You cannot be saved by church membership and baptism. You can only be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can only stand upon His righteousness alone. And if you are a Christian, what are you doing with the fact that God has saved you? The Jews no longer saw their Jewishness as an indication of God's goodness and God's grace. They saw it as an indicator of their superiority. Do you think you're better than others because God saved you? Now, I know, of course, you wouldn't say that, but do you think that? Do you, do you look out into the world and see the wickedness of the world, and do you ever think, I would never do that? I could never be like that. Ah, you think too highly of yourself. The only reason it's appalling to you now is because God has changed your heart. And so the proper response is not, I've got a God that you don't have, but rather, God, thank you for being so gracious to me that I not follow after the passions of my own flesh into the darkness. And Lord, have mercy on my neighbors who do not yet know Christ. It's a sad reality that so often the sin of the world becomes a source of pride for Christians. Remember the Pharisee who stood in the temple and he said, Lord, thank you that I am not like that man. Do you have that kind of false sense of security that everything is okay so you have no need to watch over your own heart because you're not like that man? Merely possessing the truth is not the same thing as being possessed by the truth. Do you rely on the law? You cannot fulfill it, so your reliance will fall short. Do you boast in God? This isn't the kind of boasting that Paul talks about elsewhere. This is a self-confident boasting of a man who thinks God owes him something because he's superior to everyone else. They were bragging about their relationship with God. So special were they, so great were they that God would favor them. You're not special. You're not unique because you, like me and like everyone around you as a sinner, unable to fulfill God's perfect law. Do you know God's will? Praise God. But knowing and believing and being transformed are different things. Do you approve what is excellent? Praise God. Do you do what is evil? Are you instructed from the law? Being instructed from the law is a good thing. But denying that you do what is evil is a lie. Is the Word of God a transformative reality in your life? 
And does it result in glorifying God and being a faithful blessing to others in your own life? Listen, you have the possession of the truth, and thank God for that. But by merely possessing the truth, you have no more, no more hope on Judgment Day than the person we saw last week who claims to be a relativist. Maybe you're just more consistent than they are. But that's not going to be a great deal of consolation, as Paul shows us. Secondly, this morning, just like nobody can be a relativist, no one can succeed at being a moralist. The Jews believed in morality, big time. But they were going to give this idea across to all that listened to them and all that they could teach that they needed to live on the basis of morality. This idea, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to obey His law. He's going to be pleased with me by doing those things. But notice the second list that Paul has in verses 19 and 20. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, secondly, a light to those who are in darkness, third, an instructor of the foolish, and fourth, a teacher of children. All of this possible, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, think about this along with what we just saw in verses 17 and 18. The first list that Paul made described the Jews' own experience with the law as individuals. The second list, though, he's dealing with how the possession of the law affects the way that they relate to others. So they rest in and they boast in God and their ethnicity and their knowledge of the Bible and God's will, but now we see that their aim is to guide and to shine light and to correct and to teach. So the second group goes beyond what we saw in the first. The first one was about possessing the truth. The second is about displaying the truth. And now I know you're all very thoughtful, meticulous, well-trained theologians, so I know what you're thinking. Well, that all sounds good. And of course, you are correct. If you possess the truth, you should make sure that you're doing what you can to make known the truth with the gifts that God has given you, 100% accurate. So then what's the problem? The problem is that Paul does not stop in verse 20. He goes on in verse 21. He writes, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? It's very interesting how exactly Paul phrases that because he's implying something very important here. He writes, you then who teach others. In other words, now you've been given all of the amazing advantages of the law of God and you are leading others, you are teaching others. It seems then that as you teach others, you would also be teaching yourself. And so what's the implication? The implication is that they are, in fact, not doing that at all. What's the evidence? He goes on. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is pointing out two main things here. One is quite obvious, the other one maybe not so much. The obvious bit is the hypocrisy that he's pointing out. 
And we've seen that already. He's been dealing with that all through chapter 2. But we see it here again. The Jews were living lives, and, and in those lives they, they claimed to have such a high moral standard, but that moral standard was mainly for everyone else. It was even based on God's law, but for themselves, they refused to uphold it. They were outright hypocrites as moralists. They were the definition of do what I say, but not what I do. He's calling them out. He's saying, you're telling others not to steal, but you're stealing. You're telling others not to commit adultery, but you are committing adultery. You're hypocrites. But then the second thing he points out here is idolatry. Now, this little phrase, this little statement that Paul makes, this has puzzled scholars forever because there's no historical indication that the Jews were robbing the temples. And everyone argues whether or not Paul is writing literally or metaphorically. There's this long history over the debate to this question. So we're not going to solve any of that this morning, but the point is clear, regardless of how that plays out. The point is that the Jews were claiming to abhor idolatry even though either literally or metaphorically they were taking the objects of the temple for themselves and using them for idolatrous practices. In other words, you say you abhor idolatry, but you yourself are an idolater. And so, in all of these things, Many of the Jewish teachers and leaders were guilty of these offenses, and it was common knowledge. Everyone knew of cases where the most Orthodox Jews had left loopholes in their business dealings for a little refined stealing. The Talmud itself charged three of the most illustrious rabbis with, adul- with adultery. They said they abhorred idolatry and the the dishonor of God, but they had been robbing God's temple by profaning sacred things. Even if they had not done these things overtly, spiritually they were guilty. So in just a few sentences, Paul does away with the false security which they could derive from having the truth. He completely did away with the notion that they could live as successful moralists. They were not okay. Their lives did not measure up with the, with the truth that they possessed. And so what is the result? Paul lays out the devastating outcome of those who refuse to teach themselves because they're content with being moralists. They see no need to be ready. They see no need to train. They see no need to stay sharp. They see no need to be focused because they possess the truth and their mind is possessing what they think is enough. There's a devastating outcome that Paul lays out for hypocrites and for idolaters, for the people who want to pretend that they can be moralists before God and please Him with what they are doing. Paul writes this in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? You know, every time I hear a story about some well-known Christian leader or pastor of a church somewhere, anywhere where someone has been found in some kind of sin and that sin has been exposed, I always have two thoughts. The first thought I have is, take heed, Nick Kennecott, because you too could fall. 
Don't you dare boast in any attempt to claim moral superiority here. The second thought I have is that I'm sad and I'm angry because I know what that means for people in those churches or people who have followed their ministry or people who have trusted them. It means that some of them are going to walk away from the church because they have such a deep sense of betrayal and loss, because they put so much trust in what they were hearing from week to week. They were learning and growing and making progress in their own Christian life under that ministry, only to find out that it was all a show being put on by a big hypocrite. I bet all of us can ask people we know who don't go to church if they ever have, and they'll say, yes, I did go to church, but I was hurt by the church. They're bitter because of hypocrisy. Now look, so often many of those judgments are are false and sometimes even slanderous because people expect pastors and church leaders and Christians in general to be perfect, and the first sign of imperfection they find is a reason to pounce. That's nonsense. In fact, The only organization that I can find in all of the world that requires you to admit that you're really screwed up, just like me, is the church. But I don't want to downplay the reality of what Paul is saying here. Hypocrisy is a stain on the church. Hypocrisy dishonors God. And what is the result? He says, God is blasphemed. In verse 24, Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and the the dishonor that Paul has in mind is that the reputation of God among the nations is now contaminated. The nations look at God's people, and they think little of their God. This quote from Isaiah referred to the derision that the nations gave to Israel when Israel went into captivity. And and we know, as good Bible students, we know that they went into captivity because of their sin. God brought captivity to them. So in their breaking the law, as verse 23 says, they dishonored God. They brought contempt on the name of God. This was exactly the opposite of why God chose Israel in the first place. Remember, he said, I made the whole household of Israel cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. That is our calling as God's church, that we would live for God's praise and for God's glory. We are God's people who God has chosen for His honor, but instead, when we live as if our God were worthless and the world was more valuable, instead, we dishonor God. And God, with the Israelites, handed them over to their enemies, and so He was ridiculed and His reputation was belittled. So what does that tell us? It tells us what Paul implies finally this morning, that we must learn to teach ourselves. This was Paul's great indictment. They possessed the truth, but instead of living like moralists, they should have taught themselves to live upon the righteousness of Christ. Here's the truth. We are all hypocrites, and we all live as moralists apart from Christ. 
We want a checklist so that we can do what God wants, not do what God doesn't want, and we can check off the boxes based on all these external factors, while all the while our hearts are wrapped up in sin and eventually reveals our hypocrisy. And this is our attempt to to live upon our finite wisdom. It's our attempt to live according to what we perceive to be goodness. It's our attempt to establish some kind of foundation made up of our own righteousness, and all of it eventually gives way. And when the people of God's church have sought to live upon something other than the solid rock of Christ's righteousness, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among those who do not know Christ. And so what shall be done? Now, some of you here this morning are not Christians. Maybe you've seen You've seen sin within the church. I get it. I have too. But Christians are not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. In fact, when we're honest, we'll tell you just how imperfect we are. I get impatient. I get unrighteously angry. I lose self-control. I can be very selfish. I can be very self-centered. I can be filled with pride. And in my ambitions, and instead of loving my neighbor as myself, I can use them for my own gain. But listen, that's me. I'm asking you to be honest about yourself. Don't you do things that are hypocritical at times? Don't you fall far short of perfection? I'm not playing tit for tat here. I'm just trying to show you something, namely that you and I are a lot more alike than maybe you realize. I'm, I'm a mess just like you. But that's by virtue of being a human being born into a fallen world. But as Christians, as Christians, we have the joy of knowing that Jesus Christ is cleaning up that mess little by little, day by day. It's not always going to go well. It's not always going to look good, but it's happening. It's happening. So I am offering you who do not know Christ, I'm offering you the same sweet and beautiful gift of Jesus Christ. That you look not to yourself, not to what you do or don't do, but to Christ. To Christ who lived a life that you could not live to fulfill the law of God to perfection. To Christ who died in the place of all who put their faith in Him, a death that we deserve so that we need not die that death. Of Christ who was buried in the grave for three days and was raised again that sin and death might be conquered, that we could have everlasting life with Him forever and ever. This Christ calls on you, come to me and I will give you rest. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Whose righteousness do you want to stand upon? Your daddy who was a deacon? Your own as a moralist? Or the only one who is perfect in every way who died for you? Would you come to Christ? He invites you to come to Him, to have faith in Him, to trust Him, and to love Him because He has loved you. Christian, what is Paul's word to us? Teach yourself. 
Teach yourself yet again every day to live not on your own finite self, but upon Christ's righteousness alone, upon Christ's lifeblood and flesh on your behalf alone. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a moralist. Be a follower of Jesus Christ who reminds himself or herself daily, not to me, but to him be the glory. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing that's mine that wasn't given to me by God. And all I've got is the humility that comes by knowing that Christ lived for me, that Christ died for me, that Christ was raised from the dead for me. He is my only hope. He is my only boast. He is my life and my salvation. Do you live in that conscious reality? Do you live upon this great truth every day? Do you live with that ever-present affection for Christ because of all that He is for you? Don't sit back and assume that everything is fine and you're just going to coast through the finish line. Don't just think that you've inherited this great possession of truth so it's all going to be smooth sailing. Set aside all of your attempts to appear as though you've got it all together and instead just be honest and repent. Live upon Christ and don't get knocked out in the 10th round because you thought you were too good to be ready. By then it will be too late. Look to Christ and it's in Him that we can truly live.